Resilience research has been going on for decades and surged after World War II. With the focus on resilience after crises, we can better understand what makes us vulnerable or strong when faced with adversity. We have been deep in this global pandemic that has tested the resilience of all areas of our lives, from finances, relationships, health, coping, to even just facing ourselves. We have been confronted. There is no better time to midwife our sacred stories as anecdotal evidence to uncover resilience strategies in the studies of our lives. Storytelling transforms polarization to compassion. A story opens hearts, empowers, and inspires. It sparks hope and deepens wisdom. We are the hypothesis, the research, and the answer. Shared stories are the universal medicine in our journey toward collective optimal resilience. I bring to you the I Am Resilient podcast. The I Am Resilient podcast brings you stories of resilience, research, and insights from across the globe with the goal to educate people about resilience so that they can cultivate resilience consciously and overcome life's challenges to live with meaning, purpose, and strength. Welcome to the podcast. episode, I was able to interview Alan Vonkman. Alan is a healer on all levels and brings his wisdom and compassion to all of the listeners. I really hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did listening and engaging with Alan, and I really look forward to having him on the podcast again. Enjoy. Welcome to the I Am Resilient podcast, Alan. I am incredibly grateful to have you here. And now for the listeners, I've known Alan through incredibly deep and spiritual conversations in our local cafe. But Alan, for those listeners who don't yet know you, tell us a little bit about your journey um, that has brought you to this place. Well, I would imagine like most people, our journeys are interesting and individual. I'm... uh... I mean, I'm 60 years old now, so I'm coming into what I call my elder years. But um, I started, uh, I grew up in a very kind of Christian environment, uh, very boxed, very uh, controlled in terms of what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And, And then I went into the police service, which I did for 25 years. So I was a, a police officer. Uh, and I tend to call it a peace officer uh, mm. for for 25 years, and that was from uh, 1981 to, to 2006. And I've been retired from that since then, but that has kind of kicked in, I think. I look at my life as being in, in quadrants almost, like every um, section. Uh, a lot of what I do now is really tied to the sacred circle uh, of the indigenous uh, way of thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. So I looked at that growing years as kind of my first 20 years, my, my policing years, and I really did believe that was a calling and service for me. Uh, as my second quarter and then my third quarter had been the last 15 to 20 years, which has really been more of a kind of awakening and my spiritual journey uh, and looking at all those pieces of my foundation that uh, I thought were important. And it's amazing how many of those I've looked at over that period of time and realized these foundational truths, and I use that word very loosely, um, that my life had been built on. I found most of them to be not true. Uh, Mm. So that created, um, yeah, uh, a need to go in there and dig deeper and find out what what is true. What what is it that I can actually uh, believe in, be tied to, uh, hold as a truth as I as I walk through. And now I'm kind of and I'm looking at this elder years as this sixty plus is kind of my my next phase and how to share that which I've um, been given uh, so freely. Uh, mm. Wow. And how timely that is, Alan, with what's going on in the world and where people are at in their own journey. Well, and I think 
it is, and I've always felt it was going to be that way. It's interesting. I've got these senses of things uh, more so than kind of uh, an actual, oh, it's going to be exactly this way. It's more of a sense it's going to kind of flow this way. Mm. But well, you and I met in a coffee shop quite different in, in our ages, yet <laughs> I am struck by the, um, the amazing young people that are in the world today and their openness and their wisdom and their um, willingness to question things. Mm. I call it a healthy irreverence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where, where you guys will look at everything and say, you know what, I'm not going to buy any of it, but I'll give you an opportunity to, to tell me about it. Yeah. Tell me why you think it's important to you. Tell me why you think I should believe it. And if the reasons are good and they're sound or I feel like they, they speak to me, then, then maybe I'll go that way. But yeah. I'm not going to do it just because you said so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if we didn't have it before, I think everyone will need it. Now that, um, you know, so many things are proving to be untrue in the world today. So I think that that cri critical, what did you call it? Crit critical irreverence? Uh, I call it a healthy irreverence. Healthy irreverence, healthy and critical. Yeah, is a good tool. Um, so, Ellen, where your journey has brought you today, you have probably a better understanding or different understanding of resilience than most of us with all of your police experience and studying indigenous cultures and just being the healer that you are. So what do you think makes people resilient? That's, um, I think what we're being called to in this time is uh, Finding our own authentic power again, something mm. that has been lost, I think, in society for a while, that we have trusted outside sources to be our, our power structure, whether that be government, whether that be religion, uh, whether that be academic, whether that be scientific, all of these things we've kind of looked at as being, I'm going to use the word gospel sometimes, in, mm. in our basis of truth for a lot of things, and we, we default to them. And we really haven't looked at, well, what is the inner voice inside of me saying? Uh, and I, I really think there's been a shift, as you said, in, in this time into the time of the guru. So for me, resilience is, in some ways, people being shaken into a point where they're needing to discover what their resilience is, um, is a gift. Um, that we don't always look at that way. But I think like, when I was in the police service, one of the things that I did is I worked on our peer support and our critical incident stress briefing team or management team. Mm. And we did uh, a lot of work with officers uh, for the most part that had been involved in what we would consider very traumatic experiences. And we'd bring people in after something happened. Um, a shooting, a death of a child, a very gory accident, um, different things. But it, it was always interesting how the same event could affect people differently mm. based on who they were and what their history had been or what was important to them. Um, I mean, with that group, we went as far as in 2000. Uh, just after 9-11, 2001, we went to New York City to work with uh, NYPD to help them through what had been 9-11 um, and the events of 9-11. Mm, wow. And, what, and whether we believe all those events transpired the way uh, mainstream media says or not doesn't really matter for those that were on the ground and just there and living through it. Right, yeah. Uh, and it was interesting because we didn't go till February of 2002. So we are almost six months after um, the actual incident of 9-11 and, and, the, and the falling of the towers and all the people dying. Mm, and I yeah. thought when we went there that we had gone too late. Because usually when we do critical incident work, we try to work with people within the first 48 to 72 hours trying to sit with them and get a sense of what's going on for them, really listen to what's going on and giving them a chance to kind of really speak about 
uh, what they're feeling, especially body-wise, somatic-wise. Right. So uh, you were there six months after. Six months afterward. Okay. But we got there, and what's interesting is we get there, they are still working at ground zero. They are still working to clear the debris. Wow. They are still sifting through every day. Officers are going in there. Construction workers are going in there. Firefighters are in there. The public's gathering around as they're going through, sifting through all this debris, and then they bring it all to, uh, there was a landfill site that they brought all this stuff to, and people would go there, and every day that's what they did, the conveyor belts of all this stuff goes by, and they're literally picking out body parts or trying to. Oh my gosh. That was their job. Wow. So we're working with those folks, and we found out that in actual fact, it was more like going into a war where somebody, they come off the front lines and you sit with them for a while, you kind of figure out what's happening, you try and triage it as best you can, give them a sense of how to hold that reality in a way that works for them. Um, A lot of it was just about normalizing what they were feeling. Like having them realize that what they were feeling was not bizarre or unique to them necessarily, but was a natural way that the human condition processes these things, and then having to send them back in again. Mm, so, so when we yeah. came back, I realized we'd gone too early in some ways. Not that we weren't yeah. able to work with them and bring them some sort of um, service, but at the same time, realizing that probably the hardcore work was still to come. Right. Yeah. And you but brought I up mean, a really important point, and you said um, it didn't matter whether they what they believed; it was that they were going through it. And I think that's so pertinent to every situation we go through, um, even with what the world is going through today. It's you know, it's not really about what we believe; it's acknowledging that we are going through something. And, that, and that's a really good point that we have to acknowledge that. But I, I, what I do find with resilience in life in general, I find that there's three things that help that prevent us a lot of times from doing that. Mm. And those are expectations, entitlement and control. What do I feel I'm entitled to in terms of this life? Do I, life should give me this. I've been doing everything right. I've been being a good girl or a good boy and I should, life should just kind of flow for me. Right. Or we're in this country and we should be, I'm a tax paying citizen and I should be kind of entitled to the the fruits of my labor Um, or expectations. What do I think should happen with these things? Right. Um, and sometimes with emergency services people, and you've worked in that, I mean, you, you're a nurse by trade. Yes, uh, yeah. People think that they are able to do or expect themselves to be able to do more than they can. Yeah. So we've got this society out there that watches all these superhero movies and things like that and figures that if we're in there, <laughs> we, can do, we can do it all. I mean, yeah. And as women, that, that burdens have even been placed more squarely on the shoulders of, of women over the last 50 or 100 years. Yeah. Trying yeah. to find an equal footing. And it's kind of like, but is that true? If I'm always fighting my expectation and I go somewhere and I think I have all these tools and then it falls apart and people are still dying or people are still getting hurt or the floods are happening in Abbotsford and I should have been able to when we beat ourselves up and think that we were able to do something more than there is to do, I think again stands in our way. And and that speaks a little bit to control. I think a lot of times we think that we have some control over things and and the more we realize, um, I think like the Buddhists talk a lot about that kind of sense of uh, suffering and suffering is kind of based on our expectations and our control. Oh, absolutely. It's almost like we need to decouple our our outcome or our, our expectation, like you said, from our personal uh, self-worth. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. it's a, interesting. Um, so I have a note here. Let's talk about the difference between compassion and resilience because resilience, I think, is is often sort of, I think it's mystified a lot of the time in the way that we're speaking about it right now. Um, so what do you think about compassion? What do you think about resilience? Um, it's interesting because you and I have had a little bit of this conversation before. And, and I remember after 9-11 and looking at some, some work that came out uh, with people looking at emergency services workers or people helping in times of major trauma and I seem to remember this one study was about people that had helped in an earthquake or something, and they were looking for bodies and, and uh, going through the rubble and trying to, to find people. And what they found was that a lot of times what was important was what was their mindset going into this? Was it about this is what I'm supposed to do and this I need to help and I should help? Or was it strictly coming from that place of compassion where... I'm going to be here to serve in whatever way I can and to help however that allows itself to do. Right. Yeah. And it had a huge difference on the outcome. Is that what you saw? It had a huge uh, impact on outcome uh, based on those that went in with compassion that went in following their heart in terms of what they were doing, that it was all about a heart issue, about being compassionate and however that, how can I serve the people that are in this situation? I may not be able to change things, but I can give my best to whatever that's going to be. And they had very little impact in terms of PTSD and things like that. Wow. And sort of this is um, off the questions, off of my, not off my list of questions, but do you think these people with high levels of compassion um, experiencing less PTSD, do you think that they have also high levels of self-compassion and that could be one of the factors uh, that's making them resilient? Or, or what's your opinion on self-compassion versus going in with compassion for others? That's a really good question. Um, I guess it's hard it, to tell if you don't know the people, you know. Well, I don't know if it is uh, because I think... In general, uh, I mean, even when I talk to people, you cannot have compassion for somebody else that you do not have for yourself. Mm. Compassion has to stay start at home. Love has to start at home. If you don't value yourself, you can't value somebody else. And it's interesting because in policing, I kept hearing this thing about some of these people that were involved with drugs. And if they, if they would use half as much of their time and their energy that they did to get the money for their drugs or do those things, um, the elaborate frauds they would have, whatever, to make, get their addiction fed, they would be amazing people in this world. And I'm going, but they have no compassion for themselves. They have mm. no, once a drug takes over, they have no concept of really caring about themselves. So when people say, well, an impaired driver, well, don't they think about the other people? Well, no, most of those self-medicating because they don't like themselves so how yeah. do they love somebody else uh it's so trauma-based isn't it it is and that's where some of the of work, work of guys like gabar mate are invaluable i think in, in these times where he talks a lot about that visiting revisiting our trauma trauma being compassionate yeah. to yourself looking at it's nice that we have all those traumas out there that maybe we can help with but we have to look at our own internal traumas. I mean, policing, nursing, social work, all of these are places that draw people to that are the wounded healers. Mm. They want to start their healing process by healing somebody else. Unfortunately, it kind of works the other way around. The more I heal myself, the more valuable I am as a resource to, to bring healing for others. Uh, isn't that so true? I love the way you said that. I think that it's so important to remember, especially right now, for people to tune in and do their own work because it's so easy to watch the news and the media and think about the healing that needs to happen in the world. And I am definitely um, a proponent of that. 
Um, but the work does start within and, and that's, that's almost, you know, the hardest work that we do in our life, but it's the most important. And you never know how something small impacts somebody in a large way. I mean, a smile going down the street to somebody that maybe doesn't get one. Mm, Yeah. And, And how does that spin off? And there's some great stories of, of, how that has transpired with somebody. And I'm trying to remember one. Uh, there was a lady, there was a mental health institute. And I think, uh, and I think um, the story goes, that this person had gone down there and, and ran into the cleaning lady that worked in this place. And she'd worked there for years and years and years and years. And they said, well, do you know anybody famous? And she said, well, I know this one lady that was down here. Um, and she was one of our uh, inmates, for lack of a better term. Mm. Uh, but they brought her in, and she was so uh, hard to handle. Nobody could deal with her. Whenever somebody came in, she was like a wild animal, and she's yelling and screaming and, and all this stuff. And the people that had no idea how, like, they, they would literally just uh, drop her food um, underneath <laughs> the door, knock on the door, and run away. Oh. <laughs> And, and, and even those that are supposed to be helping, like the doctors, weren't doing much better. And then she decided one day, the cleaning lady said, you know what, I'm going to bring her some cookies. Mm. So she baked her some cookies and she brought them down there. She knocked on the door and she said to her, these are for you. I'm just going to leave them here. And she kind of did the same thing. She knocked and kind of... But then she realized <laughs> that she was making all this noise. And then she started doing these small things. And all of a sudden kind of won this lady over and all of a sudden she became quite manageable for her. Like she could talk to her. She could Mm -hmm. have a conversation with her. She found out that she was hard of hearing and that was part of her resistance. She didn't know what was coming in. It was like a wild animal and hearing these noises and has no idea what's going on in their, in their environment. Wow. What's really interesting is this lady, and I can't remember her name, unfortunately, became the lady that helped Helen Keller. Oh, the inmate. Yes. Oh my goodness. So here you see the story of the cleaning lady bringing some cookies, having a little bit of compassion and how that flows out Mm. uh, into these ever widening circles, right? Isn't that, you know, that's such a beautiful example of trauma and of fear and what a little bit of love and compassion can do. It's so incredible. And it takes courage. Mm, it does. Wow. I, and being able yeah. to see a person as a person, regardless of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it took, it took the housekeeper, you know, tuning into her own sort of sense of fear and doing something anyways in a way that she still felt safe. And I think sometimes when we approach people with trauma that are so far down that road, they're, they're threatening and they're scary to be around, I think we don't know how to show them love. And it sometimes perpetuates their, their trauma. It just shows them that, of course, the world is something to be feared. And, um, yeah, we need more of those stories, that's for sure. I think so many of people, like right now, I mean, there's a lot of very sensitive people in the world right now. Mm. And they don't fit into the culture we have. Yeah. The culture yeah. that demands you are based on what you produce. Mm. You're as valuable as your bank account. Um, yeah. How hard you're working. Well, again, that's one of the things I appreciate about your generation. They're going, you know what? I'm not here to put 60 hours a week to put money in some corporation's pocket. Yeah. That says they have value me in some way or another, but everything shows that they don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the corporations, a lot of them were made for, for people who were going to commit to that time. But, you know, people are coming in with more and more charisma and creativity. So they're seeing that their time is potentially wasted if they if they start to work for one of those corporations. And I think, yeah, the generation that is looking beyond that, I think they're motivated to make the world a better place. So it is inspiring, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that's 
learning to tap into that authentic power of who we are again. We do have a voice. We yeah. do have something unique to us. Uh, the First Nations talk about that we're all medicine. Mm. So we each bring our own medicine to the world. And what is the medicine that we have that we can serve the world with? Uh, I love that so much. Alan, my second question is, what is the greatest tool you practice for your own resilience? So maybe that ties into what you just spoke about, or maybe it ties into something totally different. But what is your favorite resilience tool? Uh, for me, it's really trying to, um, to practice compassion and mm. to com practice uh, compassion that starts with me. Um, one of the, one of the genres I work a little bit in is uh, IFS or internal family systems. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, by the work of Dick Schwartz, and, and it plays on the work of Carl Jung and, and many others. Um, but he's got a book out right now that I think really kind of um, hits a nail on the head, which is there are no bad parts. And internal family systems talks about all these different voices that are going on in your head where you want to go do something. And you say, oh, yeah, that, that'd be really good. I should go do that. And then some other part saying, yeah, you're just going to get hurt, hurt again. Or mm. maybe you're not good enough. Or somebody else might be able to do it better. And all these parts of you are, in some ways, when you get to know them, are parts that have been protectors of you at some point in your journey. Mm. usually as a younger child, usually someplace earlier in life when you were not able to be as authentic as you, as you wanted to be. Right. And, and they become protectors. And underneath that is some part uh, of you that I would call it the, the wounded inner child mm. that of various ages. And a lot of times when you sit down and you talk with them, you can actually find out how old they are. When did this happen? You don't need to know necessarily what happened. You just need to hold them. But it's interesting because then you just, you literally get a sense of holding and hugging that part. Mm. That you're, you're hugging your child at that age and saying, you know what, I'm here now. Oh, that is so beautiful. I think everyone needs a little bit more of that. And is there like a specific practice that you go through in your head or um, is it a dialogue or is it journaling? Like how do you go through that process of cultivating this compassion towards your inner child when you find these wounds? With most things, I think they just start with awareness. Yeah. Like really try to be aware of what I'm thinking what are the thoughts that are going on? And I can dialogue with them. And I think that's usually the way through it. Okay. Uh, so you can do that as we're talking about with these parts and have a conversation, or you can do this with a second party. So I might be there working with somebody else and help them to talk, talk to their own inner parts, or maybe they don't feel confident enough to do it. And I'm able to talk to their inner part as them. Uh. Uh, journaling works really well too because you can actually sit down and ask it a question like you're asking me a question you can ask a question put it on the page and ask that part what do I need to know like what is it because every one of these parts has a gift yeah as well as whatever it's protecting right that's true and then at that point that you're aware of it and you give it the love and compassion that it needs do you try to let go of it or do you just move on? Um, sometimes you can move on, but I think a lot of times you have to come back and revisit it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you say, you know what, I'm here and I'll come back on another time. So you might only get partway through something. Okay. You may get a little bit through it. Uh, I mean, with these protectors trying to get to the wounded child, a lot of time you're asking permission to even talk to that part. Right. Because that's been their job for so long is to protect it to make sure it doesn't get hurt. Mm. So in so many ways, it's not different than meeting people out in the street. So if you're meeting, let's say, a street person, somebody that's on the corner begging for money, and a lot of people are going, they'll walk across the road to avoid them, right? Right, yeah. Some of, somebody else might actually just go over there and throw money at them, but will never make eye contact with them. Yeah. 
then somebody else might go over there and just say, you know what, here's a couple of bucks, or maybe they'll tell me your story. Mm. And all of a sudden you'll find out that all those things that you, because most of those are our own fears that we're holding. Yeah. Not something else they're doing. It's just kind of like, okay, so that's, that's what I'm perceiving might happen in, in a society where fear, like you mentioned, listening to the news a little while ago, mm-hmm. for the most part, I turned it off. Yeah. Because everything is so fear-based right now, and it's really trying to play on that part of our psyche. Yeah. And the more we can distance ourselves from that being um, our primary diet of fear, um, the more, the easier it becomes to enter into that place of compassion. Because for me, the opposite of love, and I use love and compassion kind of interchangeably, is fear. It's not mm. hatred, it's actually fear. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if we look at where a lot of people are functioning from, their inner child is coming out. Like a lot of people are experiencing their childhood wounds resurfacing um, in ways that they never thought that they would see. And so maybe it is just that compassion and love and being held that people need to tune into instead of watching the news or being on social media, like really just turning that off and allowing themselves to come back to this safe space of, yeah, of love. I think that's really beautiful the way you said that. And um, do you have a story of resilience that you would like the listeners to hear or something that you feel like people would benefit from hearing? Mm. This is interesting. Well, I'm going to start actually with, um, as I kind of contemplate that a little bit, I'm going to start with a poem by Relke. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another's life that's wide and timeless. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. Wow, Alan, that is really beautiful. And I think it speaks to so many things that are being experienced collectively, even the timelessness, you know, the grief and needing to open to one another. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if it's a, a, a tale specifically of timelessness or of resilience, but for me, a lot of the last couple of years has been, um, because I worked in policing, I worked in Edmonton, we had a huge First Nations population. I worked with them a lot. And during that period of time, I knew almost nothing of the residential schools and the Indian Act and all that kind of stuff. Mm, What I saw was a day-to-day stereotypes that we talk about with with drinking, with um, not working, but but of course not having the background and um, the understanding of what's behind that. Right. Which really adds to the compassion part of that, right? If I know, and we all have a story. We've all come through something. But as as I've done that, I have to reconcile that I am a white male in a time that the patriarchy is being called out for for what they have done. Mm, the yeah. the colonial mindset is being called out for what has happened <clears throat> and how can I stand in that um, and it's interesting because I, I was fortunate enough to um, be invited into the first reconciliation for carving course that they had at Langara College mm. and there we worked with a couple of uh, with a First Nations elder and one of the carvers um, from the Salish uh, and Metsqueen uh, First Nations. Mm. And 
it was um, it was very interesting as 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 we got into and they gave us the background on this and we started to hear the stories and and we had a small group about eighteen of us and it was really a gamut of different people so we had a bunch of first nations people in there we had some young people in there we had some people that were um, newer immigrants from all over the world from egypt from eastern europe oh, wow um, um i was kind of the token old white guy uh, <laughs> there were quite a few people in this program that this class about 18 uh, okay. but what was interesting so we started doing some carving and he says you know what i'm not going to teach you to be a west coast carver he says what i want you to do is i want you to get into your own stories i want you to hear the stories of your own ancestors wow i want you to bring those forward and how do you make peace with them mm. and wow. what was amazing was just how they held us in that space for being who i was and what i represented the love and compassion that was there for me and everybody else that was in there hearing stories from uh one of the ladies that was there and she was probably in her early 30s and she was first nations and she'd been taken from her place and she'd gone through 25 group or foster homes and all that wow, kind of stuff okay. and just hearing like literally hearing their story yet still seeing what an amazing spirit and being they were right oh my heart just like hearing that my heart just opens because i can feel the the love and i can I can remember times where I heard about ceremonies of people being supported for their individuality and moving through different life transitions and just showing up to celebrate one another. And I think that's something that our modern Western culture is, is lacking. And it's something that we feel so uncomfortable with. Um, at least when I hear about stuff like that, I am so full of love and, and honor and reverence. And at the same time, I almost don't know how to think about it because we, we don't do that. Um, so I think that hearing that you, like, what were your expectations when you signed up for this course? You know what? I don't know if I had a lot. Yeah. Um, it was interesting because I'd signed up for the course and like a number of things that have happened to me in my life, I'd signed up and put my stuff in and they said, sorry, the class is full. Mm. And I wasn't going into it. And, it, it. and I'd heard about it actually going to the Harmony Arts Festival in West Vancouver, met the Carver and he says, oh, we're doing this program. And I, okay, this looks good. And I waited a month and I put my th thing in and um, went in there and I thought it would be a really good opportunity. I guess my expectation is I really wanted to understand and connect with the West Coast uh, First Nations. Because right. I had moved out here a short time before that. I had some connections with the uh, with, um, First Nations from the Cree and the Plains. Uh, very different um, uh, between the two different kind of traditions. Uh, and it was a chance to do that. And so I, I put it in and they said, no, sorry, it's full. I literally got an email the night before said, somebody dropped out. Can you start tomorrow? Wow. So I did. Yeah. So I showed <laughs> up the next day. And it was kind of like I had the day before that. I had no idea I was going to be in class that day for the next wow. year. Right. Yeah. Um, and but it also made me dive into my own history. And I look at my grandparents and start to realize that I do have some history. Uh, and you're very correct. Like a lot of our for me. I'm first generation Canadian and my parents both came over individually. They met here and their families came over, but they didn't really bring any kind of traditions with them. As a matter of fact, they were trying to integrate into everything that was Canadian and they didn't even teach us the language. Exactly. Yeah. So all that came with them was their spiritual tradition with all of the dogma that came with that. So that was the only thing touchstone that we had was kind of the church at that point in time. And that was what everything kind of re revolved around. But in terms of celebrating the culture or even knowing some of the stories, and then you slowly start to piece them together. And I knew both my grandfathers were involved with the war, but in very different ways. 
my one grandfather was there as, um, and again, trying not to have any judgment, but he was there and he began to work for the Germans in helping them collect food that was rationed in, in Holland when they were there. Wow. So yeah. he worked with them. So he was not well liked by his neighbors, but I think he was doing that just to be able to support his family in one way or another. Absolutely. During that period of time. Yet my other grandfather actually worked in the Dutch underground and the underground was not so much fighting against um, the Germans as they were really trying to uh, save or hide the Jews. And that's what right. he would do. And some of those got hidden at their house and they got hidden at different places in their thing. And, and I start looking at that and go, wow, what an amazing story in my history. Yeah. yeah. And, and my sense of justice, I think, comes from there. And my sense of compassion comes from there. Mm. Um, and that becomes part of my story. But I have both those that I have to integrate somehow into who I am. Yeah. Because they're, yeah. they're both my history. And how can I hold both of those compassionately? both within myself and within my. So one of the things I do now when I work with people is I, because of what I've done with First Nations and been gifted with that and with shamanic practice uh, and even Kabbalistic practice, all of which have kind of a sh sh shamanism is something that's basic to all of us but we don't think of it that way we think of it as something different but it's just our connection to the earth it's our connection to ceremony it's our connection to all things that are around us mm, yeah so i mean I for the listeners i think shamanism it has a little bit of a stigma with it and as you start to learn about these different practices you realize that shamanism is more um holistic than a lot of people think yeah yeah it, it is very much that and it's very much kind of okay how do i connect with the power of all that is mm, how, how do i walk in two worlds at the same time that physical world and the spiritual world that's really what the shaman does is, is be able to bridge both those and we're all called to do that yeah yeah did you feel any resistance to that compassion when you were learning about your history or um yeah i mean i think it's one of the hardest things is to hold two opposing ideas at once it just seems so it seems like it creates so much turmoil sometimes so how do you do that and how how have you found that come into your story um i think that's been my journey a lot of it and i think in some ways it's all of our journeys because we we tend to label things good bad evil good or holy mm -hmm. um and, and it's interesting because i look at my my astrological chart and everything's opposites it's kind of like well <laughs> ah. your, your, your thing is going to everything's your sun signs on one side your your are how you're going to show up in the world's exact opposite really yeah um <laughs> i look That's at my wife so and myself we're opposites so everything in my life kind of shows up as opposites a lot of times yeah wow uh, and in some ways, it, it's played out in other things. So how can I be, for me, in Canada, it still says in the criminal code, we call them police, but it actually says you're, you're a peace officer. So how can mm. I do that and hold that space when it's going paramilitary? In so many ways, it has become a, a more and more kind of paramilitary arm of government mm. and control. Yeah. And, and again, I think a lot of times you, you've got really good excuses for all this until you step out of it and you, and you can get some different kind of perspective on it. And you go, oh, it's not as I thought. Maybe there is another side. And I think that pulling things apart, I think that's, I mean, even in society right now, we are seeing... Uh, a dramatic increase in, in in spirituality and those working toward what we call the light. And wow. We see another, and we see another side that's it's getting darker and darker and more um, in, entrenched in the material world as we have it in power and all those kinds of things. Okay. And, and it's like as one increases, the other increases. And it's like this: the polarity is pulling everything apart. 
but what I see for me, I see that that's actually ripping the veil apart. Mm. And we're starting to see what's behind it. We realize there is no us and them. There is no dark and light. All of it is something that is oneness in some ways. I mean, most of the spiritual traditions, when they come down to it, talk about God as being one. But one in terms of, some have misconstrued this as being there's only one God. And there only is one God. But God is one. Everything mm, becomes wow. um, an aspect of God. I mean, if you look at the Christian tradition and the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, it's one tree. Yeah, It existed yeah. before man. Yeah. So somehow all of this is part of a divine plan. How can I open myself up to, how can I hold those darker spots in myself? Because a lot of times um, our gifts are held in those dark spots. Uh, I think it's Joseph Campbell who talks about um, the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Mm, wow. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. So I think a lot of times it's, it's, it's looking at things a little differently. It's kind of like, um, in the work I do, I call it remembering, but I actually re-membering because a lot of times we're taking these splintered parts of ourselves, like these different voices we were talking about earlier and trying to bring them back into the oneness of who we are. And that's actually reflecting what we're trying to do in, in the collective is we're trying to bring everything back into the oneness that it is. We all have to work together. Oh, it's so true. You know, it's so funny, Ellen. I had somebody say to me the other day, she said, all of this Zoom and being online and doing everything over the phone, she said, I almost feel like I need to be shown how to be human. And it mm. broke my heart because I just thought, you know, if this is what we think being human is, being on a screen all day long, you know, we're so we're so far away from it. And you don't need to be shown. You just need to remember, like you said. And it's so incredible that you can be the peace officer and the coach that you are to help people remember because I think people, I think a lot of people have forgotten, actually. What? And it's like resource. Well, resource for me is how do I re and source? How do I connect back to the source of all that is? Mm. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That makes me want to take my shoes off and plant my feet in the mud. <laughs> yeah. And, and even your resilience. Like, I am resilient that you have here. And I, and I started looking at the word resilient. And it's kind of to go back to to be able to bounce back to what we were before. But what happens when what we were before, we realized we weren't happy with that either, or that it was based on a foundation of lies and, mm -hmm. and untruths? Then where do we go? But if you look deeper into salient, into that re-salient, what is salient? Mm. Salient is, uh, is stillness. And it's, mm. a, it's a state or a fact of being silent um, but it's also being able to see the giftedness in everybody around it. it it's almost like salient has been the fact that there's all these amazing gifts that people have around us that we don't notice. Mm. But resilient means that we're able to go back and see the gift that's in everybody. It's that, it, it's back to that um, namaste, right? Mm. The, the word that they, they have in, in Eastern practice that, I see the divine in you in different traditions um, have another different words for that same thing. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. And you know, Alan, I see you in your everyday life and I see the way that you see the gift in everyone. So I think it's just so beautiful to put words to what you practice every day in your life. And I just think that it's to, to bring intention and awareness for other people. I think is just such a gift. And I wanted to ask you how and when you were drawn to practice resilience, whether it was um, self-compassion or IFS. Was it during your policing or when did you create sort of intentional practices for yourself? Because I can imagine 
a lot of the things you've done in your life have been an incredible pull on your own resilience. You know, that's an interesting question because it, um, it does make me go back. And I think it predates the police. I think it probably dates to getting into police. Yeah. And why I, as a child, when I talked to my mom, she says, well, at eight or nine years old, you already said that's what you're going to be. And where that came from, <laughs> not quite sure, because there's, there's wow. no history of it in the family. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know if my dad would have been all that happy because he grew up in the war in, in, in that whole uniform thing with the, with the army and stuff. Right, uh, yeah. My understanding is that, that there was some dichotomy in him with, with that, although he always um, treated me well in that. Uh, but I, as a kid, I remember being um, bullied a lot. Mm. And I remember going home and just laying on my bed and crying. Oh. And just scream, and screaming out to the divine, really just crying out to the divine. Wow, so really? It was, so it was always there, I think, that, that I had that connection to the divine. Yeah. But as time went on, I realized that the divine that I knew... And as it was defined by the church, just didn't seem to fully encompass that which I wanted to experience or knew was out there. Right. Yeah. So that became the journey further than that. But even, um, I think, in policing, I always had that touchstone that I knew. It's funny because once I started policing, I, in a lot of ways, I kind of left the church. But I right. never left my spiritual practice. Mm. So for yeah. me, that was always a touchstone of, of it. And I see things, in and for me now at this point in time, I can as easily sit and worship uh, what I know to be God um, in a sweat lodge, in a mosque, in a church, uh, in a guru or a boudoir. Um, mm. To me, it's interesting because an old um, Jewish sage was asked, does God exist? And he thought about it for a little bit of time. And he says, no. He says, God is existence itself. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and that's kind of the way I feel like God has become like who, who is God has become more what is God. Yeah. Yeah. And it is everything. And, and it is everything. I think we, and if we realize that it is everything, and that's one of the beautiful practices of First Nations and, and again, of the shamanic is uh, that fact that the divine is in everything. Mm. And it's true of the Jewish, the old Jewish mystic tradition. I mean, they, they looked at, as a matter of fact, the two names of God uh, as they were given, uh, yod heh vav -Heh, which is pronounced Jehovah in the Christian church, mm. uh, was kind of like God the Father or um, uh, Father Sky, right. Father, Father Heavens. Uh, and the female aspect of God was actually creation was actually mother earth was mm. actually elohim because in their tradition elohim and nature are actually the same numeric value because in in jewish and um, hebrew letters every letter has a, a value and oh, they can right. interchange they can interchange words based on the value of the word and elohim wow. and nature have the same same value isn't that uh, amazing so there's things like this that make me realize that what I had seen before, I had experienced a little bit in my being, and it always kept me coming back. There, there, was, that, there was that piece of it that I knew to be true, mm. even though wow. a lot of the other stuff would fall away or just become, as I've said to some people, I said, Kabbalah made me look at Christianity and, and the, the pale black and white picture I used to see, I now see in a, in a technicolor way that's so different than what it was before. Yeah, yeah. And by, I mean, by broadening our perspectives and seeing the divine in everything and honoring those different, different perspectives on the divine, I think um, we can more easily see the divine in other people, people that may or may not have ideas or opinions that we agree with. Um, so I think that's, I think it's amazing that you've done that work and you've explored so much in your almost, you said almost 60 years. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so, Alan, what do you think the world needs right now to be more resilient? Uh, actually, what, what comes to mind is the Beatles 
love, 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 the world needs more love. Which uh, is kind of that old Beatles song is, and it really is kind of that compassion of um, letting go of all. What is it we're holding on to? I mean, we look at what's happening around us at this moment in the Lower Mainland, and we see the floods, and all these people have lost everything. Yet, there's been very little loss of life. Yet communities are coming together. So the first half of like COVID and all these traumas we saw really intensified this Western mindset of you can be everything, you can do everything, you have to be self-sufficient, you have to be good at everything. And then it put that on steroids. And and now, like your friend said, I mean, I'm what's human touch? I'm on Zoom, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Yeah. But I have no human contact. And it's kind of like, well, how's that working for you? And now yeah. with this new, like there's a new energy that's come in again in the last month or so. That's the next phase, I believe, of this. This is my personal belief, mm-hmm. uh, which is bringing in that community. And we have seen with all these things that have been happening around us that it has been the community that has stepped up and made the difference. It's been people helping neighbors. It's been getting to know their neighbors and working with everybody again that's brought this together. It hasn't been government. They've been, they've been short. It, it hasn't been the police or the emergency services have helped out in a way, but it has been the rank and file individual humans helping humans that has got us back into that place of, of supporting each other and realizing that we have to be kind of, we are our brother's keepers in a lot of ways. Mm. Yes. Wow. That is, yeah, that is so beautiful. And I really hope that gives all of the listeners something to think about because I think people don't know where to put their attention these days. And Mm -hmm. by looking around at your neighbors and in your community and just seeing how you can act in service and cultivate that self-compassion and compassion for others, I think that is where the work needs to be done. So, Alan, I wanted to say thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with myself and the listeners. I wish I had a cup of coffee and I wish it was 8 (laughs) a.m. And I wish I was sitting across the table from you like I usually see you. Um, And the dream is that this podcast will stretch far and wide to promote healing. And people can book in for coaching sessions with you at www.thecoachingcircle.ca. And until next time, may you be well. And I want to say again, thank you so much, Alan. Well, thank you for this opportunity. And um, please continue the good work. I'd like to leave you with another Wordsworth or another uh, Relke poem, if I could. Please do, please. So this one's called Live the Questions. I want to ask you as clearly as I can to bear with patience all that is unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were rooms yet to enter or books written in foreign language. Don't dig for answers that can't be given to you yet. You cannot live them now, for everything must be lived. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday you will gradually, without noticing, live into the answer. Alan. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that. Thank you so much. And I hope everyone can close their eyes for a minute and take a deep breath and maybe place their hand on their heart and just take that in. Thank you, Alan. And set that attention. I am resilient. Thank you, Alan. I hope to have you on the podcast again. I'm sure the world will change quickly and everyone will need more of your words. And so, yeah, thank you again. Thank you from everyone who gets to hear this and from my own heart who gets to be on the other side. I hope everyone enjoyed this as much as I did. Thank you. I look forward to it.
You've been listening to the I Am Resilient podcast. If you would like to get involved with I Am Resilient, use the hashtag I Am Resilient to tag your stories, tools, and practices on your Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Until next time, may you be well.